Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good evening, everyone. Welcome back. My name is Margaret Chesney, and I'm the director of the UCSF uh, Osher Center for Integrative Medicine. Anyway, we're, here we are to talk about life in balance. And we're moving now to talking more about some of the challenges to a life in balance. Uh, this is one of the, the greatest challenges, I think, to trying to keep your life in balance is not only the things we've talked about, about diet and Ellen Hughes' wonderful array of things that we can do to make a difference. And I hope some of you did something last week. How many of you did something? Some flossing, small plates. We saw a finger, one finger. How many of you, have, since you've been in the class, thought about doing something? That's called intention. We like that. That's good. Then after you intend, like you walk by the running shoe store and you just look at the shoes, that's step number one. Then you work toward a little closer, like saving up some money so you can get some shoes to do walking. So that's intention. But all of that is to help you uh, learn what you can do, and here's one of the reasons why, and that is that we have a great deal of stress in our lives. And a lot of this stress comes from competing demands. How many of you know about the sandwich generation and are finding yourself in it? I see some hands. That's an example of competing demands. People in their 50s, early 60s, sometimes late 40s, are stuck in what's called the sandwich generation. It means that these are people who are caring for children who may be finishing high school, looking at colleges, in college. You know, you're still really thinking about those little people in your lives that have become a little bit bigger, and their problems can be bigger, like car crashes, things like that. And on the same time, you'll get a phone call, and you don't know, is it going to be something about your youngster, or is it going to be something about a parent? And that's a competing demand. And both of those demands are actually competing within the family, two demands coming from within your own family. You can have competing demands within yourself. Like you had this class tonight, and some of you uh, decided, you know, gee, we've got this other thing we really have to do, so I think we'll miss that one. And you, maybe we can watch it on the web or something. Or you thought, I've got that class, but I've got this, I've got that. And they're all good things. So stress can come from having two good things you have to choose between. Those are competing demands within yourself. Competing demands can also be between what we might call life, your family, yourself, your friends, and work. And this is a major source of stress for many of us. It's called, it's actually even given a name, and there are offices now of the Office of Work-Life Balance because it's how do you balance this? And what's amazing, even if you become a retired person, quote-unquote retired, many people get involved in volunteer work and other activities, and before they know it, they're busier than they were when they were, quote, working. So this is a major source of stress. And we will be talking tonight and have a wonderful speaker who's going to be focusing on the impact of stress on our bodies, on our resilience. Uh, that's tonight. I'll introduce our speaker in just a minute. Uh, our next talk will be on b bringing wisdom and science to our diet. So we'll return back to diet because what we will hear is that stress can impact some things like how we behave. Some of the ways we cope with stress are not always so good. Last week, I must admit, I didn't get any dinner. I ran to that food place and there were long lines, accepted everything except the French place or the, I guess it's Italian. I bought a piece of pound cake and I hid it here and ate in the second row 
nibbled on it a little bit. Um, that is what some of us do when we're running and under stress. We just grab a Snickers. And we say, well, it's got peanuts in it, so it's good for us. Uh, not so much. Anyway, so what we need to do is think about um, you know, what we do when we respond to stress. And you'll also be hearing tonight about what happens to our bodies under stress. So I want to introduce our next speaker in the series, Dr. Alyssa Eppel. Let me tell you a little bit about Alyssa. She's in health psychology, and she's also a behavioral medicine researcher. She focuses on the pathways by which those competing demands can get somehow into our bodies and what it does. She studied psychology and psychobiology at Stanford University, where she got her bachelor's degree. And then she went all the way across the country to Yale, where she got a PhD at one of the best universities to learn about health psychology. She then um, completed an NIMH postdoctoral fellowship here at UCSF, and then she was so fabulous. We kept her on the faculty in the Department of Psychiatry. I remember seeing her application for postdoc, and we had these stacks and stacks, and there were five of us in the room, and we all sort of said, we looked and said, well, who's on your short list? And everyone just said, well, Alyssa Apple. And she has just been spectacular. Over the past 15 years, she's focused on studying stress in the lab. And there she uses what are called standardized stressors, and she'll tell you about those. She's also gone into the field and studied more naturalistic stressors or people who say, I'm really feeling stressed. She's focused on understanding how stress can affect eating, and then we'll talk about eating next week. Our behaviors, it can affect where we put fat on in our bodies, and most important, it can affect immune cell aging. She has shown that people's propensity to be a a stress reactor, psychologically or in terms of some physical signs, is a predictor of overeating and also, most currently in her work, accelerated cell aging. With her colleagues, Elizabeth Blackburn and um, Ju- uh, Ju Lin, I think I'm saying that right, and you might remember Elizabeth Blackburn just won the Nobel Prize for medicine last year. Well, she, Alyssa works very closely with Elizabeth, and they were the first to show, and actually this was Alyssa's work, they were the first to show that stress perceptions as well as stress arousal are related to telomere shortness and dampens um, our telomerase activity. She will tell us how important that is. Uh, Their UCSF group has now um, collaborated with many, many research teams because everyone now wants to measure telomeres in their studies. And when you finish hearing this lecture tonight, you're going to be wanting to protect those telomeres yourself. Um, She is with the um, Osher Center Integrative Medicine, helping us study stress reduction interventions and how those might enhance the functioning of um, our telomere telomerase maintenance system and protect or even maybe lengthen our telomeres, which is a good thing. So today she's going to be talking about the new science of stress and stress resilience. Please join me in welcoming Alyssa Eppel. Thank you for coming out tonight to um, hear about the new science of stress and stress resilience. And uh, I guess another title or way to think about this talk is, can stress really make us depressed and and gray-haired? And what can we do about it? So there's definitely a little positive, um, some strategies at the end. So are we really going to sit here and talk about stress for an hour? Why and why should we? Is stress really that important in health? 
And it, you know, ha- isn't it all about our genes and our DNA? Those are so, so important. So I'm just going to tell you really briefly about two recent findings in the literature that look at perceived stress. This is the easiest measure in the world to get. It's questions like, how stressed are you on this you know, one through four scale? And so people who perceive themselves with higher stress in this large study of over 12,000 adults actually died earlier. This was a study where they, they looked at a, a large sample across an age range. The, the people at most risk of uh, stress predicting earlier mortality were actually young men in this study. They had a 2.6 times greater risk of earlier mortality if they re- simply reported greater stress in their life. And then there are some classic studies with caregivers, spouses, uh, people caring for a spouse with dementia or a chronic condition. This is a really difficult life stressor that goes on and on for years. And so we researchers study caregivers a lot because they help us understand how people cope with stress and as well as how stress makes people vulnerable to disease. So in these studies, they measured perceived stress, what they call emotional strain, and some caregivers don't feel stress at all. Some caregivers report a lot of burden and high stress. And so it's really amazing, given the same situation, people have such different perceptions. So stress is really partly the study of individual differences and how some people see the same situation and live in it in such a different way where their brain responds to it differently and they feel really high, um, highly taxed. So in caregiver studies... Caregivers who feel more stress have a 23% greater risk of stroke. That finding just came out. And a dramatic study showing that among elderly caregivers, those feeling strained had a 63% greater risk of early mortality in just a four-year span. So you probably um, feel that stress affects you, and I'm not going to spend the hour proving the point that stress matters. So the old question is really, does stress matter? And trying to, um, you know, scientists trying to convince the field that, that stress is real and it's just not just in the head. And there are journals and journals in our field filled with w- documenting ways that stress affects different diseases, progression, onset, uh, treatment. So we're not really going to talk about can stress affect us, um, but really how. So we're going to delve deep into the mechanism and tr- and look at how stress gets under the skin to affect our cells and even our DNA. So even the zebra knows that stress can affect his stripes. Actually, this is like DNA unraveling. I'm going to talk about DNA unraveling in a a bit. So the new question that we're going to focus on is how does stress affect our health? What are the pathways? What are the mechanisms? I'm going to focus on three examples that use DNA, how stress either interacts with DNA to predict depression or how stress is actually causing a certain pattern of gene expression, and lastly, how stress is shortening our telomeres, the tips of our uh, uh, the DNA that protects our chromosomes, cellular aging. And then at the end, we'll talk about what is stress resilience and how can we promote it. And after hearing about all of these ways that stress can damage our health and affect us. Believe me, you are going to want to be stressless. You, you may want to push away feelings of stress, get rid of stressful situations, and that's natural. Our brains are just hardwired to avoid pain and suffering. Um, but actually, stress happens and is embedded and inherent in life. And so really the task is, rather than becoming stressless, which is impossible, <laughs> is really how can we live well with stress. So I like the title of the series, Life in Balance. And 
Um, one of the ways I'm just going to summarize by calling these ways of living being stress resilient. So how do we measure stress as scientists? We, we break it into three parts, and stress is really this multidimensional construct. So there are things that happen, situations that are outside of ourselves, like having too much work and, and too much responsibility. So these are situations, and then whether they're stressful or not depends on our mental filter, how we're seeing the situation. So we call that appraisal, cognitive appraisal, and this is this measure of perceived stress. And then how does stress get under the skin? The physiological stress response responds to these perceptions of stress, and this triggers changes, hundreds of changes in the body. But the primary stress response systems, just to simplify things, cortisol, insulin, and inflammation. So cortisol is a primary stress hormone. It goes up acutely when we're acutely stressed, and then it goes down. But it can become dysregulated. It can be stuck and elevated in states of chronic stress, or it can actually be too low and not be doing its job there, and then inflammation rushes in and stays elevated. So there's a real complex signature to the stress response, and we all have different ways of responding to stress. Just to give you an example of some of the situations that are, we know that are really affecting health, these chronic stressors, um, low social economic status this is one of the most robust and consistent predictors of earlier onset of disease and early mortality, job strain and overload, interpersonal stress, relationship strain, especially divorce and social isolation. Having a chronic illness is a chronic stressor or taking care of a loved one with a chronic illness, caregiving, bereavement, and, of course, natural disasters and traumatic events. And then there's daily stressors that we all deal with. I think one of the most common stressors that you probably all face every day is time stress, just not having enough time to get everything done that you'd like to do and rushing around and being late. And that's just to become part of our daily stress that we, we tend to accept if we're one of those late people. So stress is really embedded and it's part of our life. And I'm going to ask you to just take a minute and reflect on your own perceived stress. So um, if you don't have a pencil, maybe you can ask a neighbor to borrow one. And what I'd like you to do is just to read yourself these three questions. In the past month, how often have you felt you were unable to control important things in your life? And give yourself a rating from zero to four. Never, almost never, sometimes, fairly often, or very often. So when you've answered these, how often you feel stressed and tense, how often you felt like difficulties are just piling up too high, then I'd like you to just do a little bit of arithmetic. So add those three numbers and divide by three. So you're going to get an average item score of what number you tend to rest at. The reason I'm asking you this is you'll see later, you're going to see some data using these numbers, and then you can actually apply it to yourself. So let me just first talk about depression. Now, why choose depression? Depression is extremely common. It's the second most common disorder. It's characterized by either sad mood or just feeling a loss of interest in things you're usually interested in, and then a bunch of other symptoms, like physical symptoms, loss of appetite, disruptive sleep. Um, it really affects people's life and, and their, you know, their life trajectory and what they want to do in life dramatically. So it's a leading cause of disability, and it has a tremendous societal burden, 20% cost for all mental disease. Um, so what do we know about what causes depression? There's been a long history of stress research showing that 
experiencing stressful life events sometimes triggers a major, an episode of major depression. And so, for example, you can see in one, one of these classic studies that if you add up the number of stressful life events, people with three or four events have a dramatically increased likelihood of having a depressive episode. So stress is affecting depression, but not for everyone. There's still a lot of individual variability, a lot of variance in whether you personally are going to become depressed or not. So I'm going to talk about three factors that, that um, help us understand when and where stress can cause depression. So one is the type of events. Turns out the interpersonal loss and rejection events are very potent, very linked to depression. The timing events, early events, um, even in, in utero, but mainly early childhood events we now know have a very big effect on later adult health, including mental health and genes. So in this study... Um, researchers examined what are the kinds of events that preceded episodes of depression. And so you can see that a minor loss predicted a, um, a almost uh, fourfold increase for risk of onset of depression. Other losses as well. Death predicted a tenfold increase in risk for major depression. And then you can look at breakups or divorces. And something very interesting pops out. So here you see that If you initiate a breakup or a a divorce, there is a tenfold increase in risk of depression. But if someone breaks up with you, it jumps to over 20-fold. So there's something extremely powerful about rejection stress. And there is a literature by George Slavich and colleagues that really examine the type of events and rejection events being um, targeted at work or in interpersonal relationships, being broken up with, something that hurts your ego and is very personal. These are the types of events that bring on depression much sooner than other events. So targeted rejection brought on depression within one month compared to other types of stress. What about the timing of events? So the child brain is extremely sensitive. It's being hardwired to... um, to be resilient to stressors. And if stress happens very early on, it actually affects the brain for the long run. So these are the types of events that we measure, that we know matter during childhood. They are common. They're about parental separation, uh, parental substance use disorder, fighting, as well as the child uh, being abused or neglected. So we add these up, and we, we, we see how this predicts adult health. And indeed, having more of these events predicts earlier onset of disease in large studies, as well as some of the mechanisms for disease. Increased reactivity, cortisol reactivity to stress, smaller hippocampus, important part of our brain that controls the stress response, greater vulnerability to depression. Um, and this is a study looking at women with and without depression, and with and without early life trauma. And what's so interesting about this data is that whether they're depressed or not, you can see that these women have exaggerated stress responses. Their stress hormones, ACTH and cortisol, are jumping much higher in adult life, even this group who's non-depressed but experienced some early events. So we know there's, it affects the wiring of the stress response system. So in rat studies, they found the same thing. They can actually look at the early nurturance of rats. They, they measure licking and grooming of the mom to the baby pup. And the rats who don't get licking and grooming actually look like these uh, 
these adults who had early trauma. They have this exaggerated stress response. And we now know that, that there's a very specific mechanism for that, that the actual um, uh, the brain develops so that certain genes are turned on or off, so that the stress response system is, is particularly on when there's no licking and grooming or nurturing early on. The, you could think of it as like the organism's really prepared to be in a, a stressful environment. So what about genes? It's not often that you get a gene that's really predictive of a lot of bad outcomes, but we do have this case. In the case of depression, what we call the depression gene. This is the serotonin transporter allele. And this is a gene that um, we all have either, uh, it comes in a short and a long version. If you get the long version, then you're getting more, this transporter is bringing more serotonin into the synapse here between your neurons. So you're getting more serotonin dose. So people either have two short alleles, a short and a long, or a long and a long, if you're lucky. The minority of people have these longs. And it turns out that if you have two shorts, you're more vulnerable to stress-induced depression. So let me show you some data that looked at that. This applies to both life stress as adults as well as early trauma. So in this study, they looked at early trauma or early maltreatment. Now, if you, if you don't have maltreatment, it doesn't matter what your gene is. You have the same risk for depression. But you can see here the group with severe maltreatment, if you have a long, long, you're not more likely to become depressed with maltreatment. But if you have two short versions, you're having less serotonin in that synapse, you are much at much greater risk for depression. So we're all walking around with different vulnerabilities to depression. That's genetically based, biologically based. It's, you know, it's really a very medical disorder that we need to, to view and treat that way. I'm going to tell you about... I'm, uh, uh, some new research on gene expression because it's so fascinating and it really explains a lot of, I think, of human health and how the environment shapes human health. So how do our genes uh, translate into proteins and health and, and build our tissue? So basically, just to go over a really simple model, you can see that so genes, trans, um, there are transcription factors. So these factors like uh, glucocorticoid, the, the hormone, is a, can go into the cell and serve as a transcription factor. And there are signals or hormones that tell the genes whether to turn on or off. So uh, transcription factors bind to a DNA promoter region. So they find the gene that has the little site or receptor for it. It binds there, and it turns the gene on. So some genes are turned on by cortisol. Some genes are turned on by an inflammatory factor called NF-kappa-B, and there are lots of other transcription factors. So our genes are controlled by some of the hormones and other um, transcription factors. So then what happens? The DNA reads off, transcribes into an RNA, exits the nucleus, now it's in the cell, and it can actually enter this little machine called a ribosome and turn into a protein, and that's what matters. We're built of proteins. So what proteins are your body making? It's not just a function of your genome. It's also a function of these little messengers, these transcription factors. And guess what? Our state of mind is controlling levels of these transcription factors. So let me show you some very clever work by my colleagues, um, Steve Cole and Greg Miller. They asked, does stress create different patterns of gene expression? And we know that chronic stress can upregulate inflammation, and it can either upregulate cortisol or make cells 
um, glucocorticoid resistance, so they cannot actually see and hear the cortisol. The cortisol does not actually enter the cell. The, the cell is uh, resistant to cortisol, probably because it got too much cortisol, so it becomes resistant. So the prediction was that in stress groups, we're going to see lots of genes that were responsive to NF-kappa B, the inflammatory factor, but a really muted response from the genes that were turned on by cortisol, because the cortisol signal is not getting in in chronic stress. So that was the hypothesis. Inflammatory signals will be overexpressed, and uh, cortisol signals will be silenced. So now, in a classic stress study, they've gathered a group of caregivers and lower stress um, controls, and they looked at the types of genes that were turned on by glucocorticoids. You can see the controls have a normal amount. The caregivers have a significantly lower amount of these genes that are expressed by cortisol. And then if you look at NF-kappa B, the inflammatory factor, you see that caregivers have a tremendous number of genes that are being turned on by inflammation. So the whole pattern of proteins that are being made is being regulated by more by this inflammatory factor. So this finding has been now replicated in a lot of different samples. It's not just stress, but other states of disadvantage. So, for example, uh, chronic caregive, besides chronic caregiving, an elderly sample who was lonely, um, a sample who had low social economic status, low education or low income. In children, this, this has also been shown. And then we've uh, recently looked at our dementia caregiver sample, and we find the exact same pattern. So states of stress create, tell the DNA to create different proteins in our bodies. So our whole biochemistry is different. So this next topic is, I have to admit, one of my favorite. This is what I study. Um, we're going to talk about stress and cellular aging and rate of aging. And before I jump into this, I, I have a disclosure to make. We have, um, as Margaret said, there's been a great demand for uh, measurement of telomeres and interest in using it clinically now that it's been shown to matter in all of this research that telomeres are related to health. So um, my with my colleagues, we've started a company that measures telomeres for research and eventually clinical use. So what is a telomere? I'll take a step back. Telomeres are little non-coding packets of DNA that sit at the ends of chromosomes. And they're very important because they protect the chromosomes from all sorts of problems like fusing and breaks. And they're this repeat sequence um, of DNA that's all wound up and capped here. But every time the cell divides, um, sorry, many of the cells in our body are mitotic cells, so they're dividing cells. And these are the cells that are really important for healthy aging. So, for example, the lining of our cardiovascular system is always turning over. Our immune cells, our hair cells are turning over. So all, lot, many of our cells are replenishing throughout life, and we need them to. If they don't replenish, we're going to get old-age tissue. So in these cells, as they divide, the telomeres tend to shorten with time. And as they get too short, uh, when they get too short, the cell becomes senescent. So it's like a clock on the cell's life. Now, what does senescence mean? The cell doesn't necessarily die, but it reaches a state of old age, a senescent state, where it's no longer able to do its job and no longer able to divide. So I study immune cells. So in immune cells, we, they reach what we call replicative senescence. They can't uh, replicate. And the bad news is the inner machinery of the cell 
has changed its job to, create, to now spew out pro-inflammatory cytokines. So immune aging is now one of the dominant models of how we age and what causes disease. And our internal kind of chemistry and milieu has turned more and more pro-inflammatory. Um, and part of what's happening is that the immune cells are aging and now they're creating uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines, as well as the fat. I'm not going to talk about fat tonight, but fat cells go through the same process of senescence and inflammation. So this was an article around election, uh, soon after Obama won the election, and the article was on, you know, um, is he stressed out, the stressed out tips of his chromosomes, his telomeres might be to blame. But it was all about his gray hair, and people were saying, oh, he's going gray so quickly, and maybe after Tuesday's election, he's even more gray. But anyway, the question is, is it really stress? And there's really no proof that stress causes gray hair. Um, but there, there certainly are studies that offer hints. So one recent study showed that DNA dam, um, taking uh, hair cells, the melanocyte stem cells, these are the cells that create color and replenish our hair color as the cells divide. So when you um, expose these to radiation, they get DNA damage and they become senescent and they stop producing pigment. So there is, you know, physiological stress that definitely can damage those important stem cells. We still don't know about gray hair and psychological stress. But I won't go into it, but there are a lot of hints that psychological stress causes oxidative stress, free radicals. So that's another pathway. So what do we know about telomeres? Telomeres, I told you, they're a clock on the cell's life. Are they a clock on our life, on the human organism? So... There have been now many epidemiological studies showing that when you have short telomeres in your white blood cells, you also, um, that that this is correlated with a vast array of diseases of aging. And what's interesting about this biomarker compared to others is it's so unspecific. Telomeres have been related to almost, you know, to, to... I think most chronic diseases that we know of. So they're related to the heart disease category, diabetes, vascular dementia, obesity, Alzheimer's, osteoporosis. And, and that's because it's, you know, it's part of, um, I think maybe you, you might think of it as the, the flip coin of old aging tissue. If you look inside, you see short telomeres. So it's a general aging process regardless of tissue. And the white blood cell is a little bit of a window into what's happening in the rest of the body. Um, we wanted to know... Um, yes, question. Just a quick question. Yeah. Um, the diabetes that you mentioned, is that type 2 diabetes or type 1 diabetes? And was that specifically looked at yeah. in adults or right. children also included in that? That's a good question. So um, I would have answered this differently um, last month, but new studies have come out. The question is, is telomere length linked to type 1 diabetes, the type we find more in children, or type 2, the type we get with aging and obesity? And it's in uh, many studies, it's linked to type 2 diabetes in adults. But they recently um, did a mouse, I think it was a knockout, where the mouse didn't have telomerase. I won't be talking much about telomerase, but it's a really important enzyme. It's the driver of telomere length. It replenishes the telomere length. If you don't have enough telomerase, the telomere length shrinks quicker. So they made these, mou- these poor mice have very low telomerase, and their beta cells, their pancreatic cells that they need to produce insulin, died early and atrophied, and they've got type 1 diabetes. So telomerase is really important for many types of cells, especially these kind of progenitor cells that we need to keep dividing. So we asked whether telomere length shortening predicts mortality. We already know that just telomere length at one point in time predicted mortality, but 
does the rate of the shortening matter? Because that would offer us some hope that we might, even if we're short, that we might control the rate of aging and modify it. And so we looked at a little snippet of a two-and-a-half-year period in um, people's life. We had a, this was an initial study with a small sample. Um, I think it was about 235 elderly men and women. They were all healthy. And in the women, we just found that telomere length predicted mortality as in other studies. But in the men, we found it was rate of change. So let me show you what that looks like. The change, the, those who sh- had shortening in this short period of two and a half years, these men had a much lower probability of surviving by 12 years later. But the men who had their telomeres were pretty well maintained during this period had much better survival. So what we know now from this and other studies, actually, is that telomeres can be maintained, when you look within a person, we're not just always shortening. They can stay, be stable for a while. They can even lengthen. So that's really good news. So Margaret mentioned our, our, um, our study on stress and telomeres. So our, really, our first question when we started studying this was, what about chronic stress? We looked at moms caring for children with chronic dis, uh, conditions, and we looked at their telomeres. And we found that perceived stress mattered a lot. So when you look at the women in the highest quartile of perceived stress and compare them to the low-stress women, they had uh, dramatically different telomeres. They were um, missing about, or they were shorter about, by about 550 base pairs, which is equivalent to what you'd expect to lose given the rate of telomere loss over years, in over 10 years. So they did have shorter telomeres. And then we also looked at duration of caregiving. And you can see there that the longer these women had been caring for a child with a disorder, the shorter their telomeres. So that's more of an objective measure. So it's not just about um, genetics or... um, Because when when your child gets a diagnosis, is kind of a, a random event. So I had mentioned that early childhood events matter. There are now several studies showing that early child trauma is also linked in adults to shorter telomeres. So in this study, these are all healthy, healthy adults. No one's depressed. And you can see that the healthy adults who did have child maltreatment had significantly shorter telomeres. So there's a footprint or a, an imprint or a shadow of early childhood adversity on adult health. Can I ask a question? Please. Right. It's a, it's a good question. The question is, well, what about culture and cross-cultural comparisons? And when we think about children and their early experiences, has this been looked at in, for example, non-Western cultures? We, we haven't. I know there, there's a group at Harvard that, it, that is looking at Romanian orphans. Um, so it's culture definitely matters, and culture can also serve as a buffer <coughs> to chronic stressors and can make certain stressors more normative. So I, I don't have a great answer for you except for that. That's a good point, and we don't know yet. Any other questions? this point. So how does all this happen? What's in the black box between feeling stressed, perceiving stress in the mind, and having shorter telomeres in our white blood cells? So the short answer to that is we don't know yet, but we have some good clues. And this is my very simple schematic of what's happening. So we perceive stress, and then we have, we make stress soup. And stress soup is, you know, these four biochemical stressors that we, they're all really important, and they also influence each other. So um, cortisol and insulin go up, this kind of source of metabolic stress that creates inflammation and oxidative stress. But there's another important pathway that I don't want to leave out, which is adiposity. 
So cortisol and insulin during stress also pack in fat into the visceral or abdominal fat cells. And that, these cells serve as another source for cytokines and oxidative stress. So these cells act almost like an endocrine gland, and they can secrete factors like cortisol and inflammatory factors into our blood as well. So fat cells are really important in shaping our health and what I'm going to call our biochemical stress soup whatever we are creating with our mind and we're walking around and living in. So this, um, these levels of biochemical stressors, are most of these have been linked to shorter telomeres. And some of these studies have kind of shown this in a mechanistic way, like taking white blood cells and, or other cells, fibroblasts, and exposing them to free radicals, hydrogen peroxide, and finding that it shortens the telomeres. And that's also been done, by, done with cortisol, um, uh, colleague at UCLA, Rita Efros, has shown that applying the stress hormone cortisol to white blood cells dampens down the telomerase dramatically. So we have a clue that, you know, this, some factors in the soup are affecting the longevity of our immune cells. But there is good news. So now we're going to get closer and closer to the good news. So it looks like from these cross-sectional studies, there are many things that we can do to protect our telomeres. It's probably a very similar set of factors that that protect our heart health, our cardiovascular health. This list doesn't look too different. So um, obesity and insulin resistance are related to shorter telomeres, but exercise is related to longer telomeres. Take, um, having greater levels of omegas in the blood is not only um, related to longer telomeres. This was an amazing study done by colleagues here at UCSF, Mary Hooley and uh, Ramin Farzana-Far, and they found that over five years, one of the only predictors of telomere lengthening was omegas in the blood. So that was really compelling, and I definitely take, try to get high doses into everyone in my family <laughs> um, because they do lots of other things besides helping telomeres, mood, inflammation. Omegas seem to be all good with low risk. Um, and then vitamins from supplements and food have also been linked to longer telomeres. Vitamin C has been linked um, and then certain foods have been linked to shorter telomeres, processed meats, sausages, hamburgers. So they're, you know, kind of emerging clues from this population health about things that we can control that might be shaping our telomeres. Yes? Um, where do you collect the telomeres from the body, and how much variability is there in the measurements that you get? You know? Mm-hmm, right. Uh, how do you collect telomeres, and how much variability is there? So when you, um, so what we're doing now, the typical way is through a blood draw. And so it's very easy. We just need a little bit of blood. And, and in that blood, there are the cells. And in the cells, there are the DNA. So it's the DNA that we're measuring. Um, the variability question, we can't quite answer. The only studies that have measured telomeres repeatedly over time have been our own studies, most of them unpublished. And what we find is that um, rather than thinking telomeres change slowly over years and years, we see cha- meaningful changes over one year. So, for example, stress re- when perceived stress goes down over a year, telomere length tends to go up, tends to increase over just one year. And in our intervention studies, um, we're starting to measure it in a shorter time frame because we think we can you know, maybe change it in four months, six months, but we just don't know yet. So if you so the variability in the assay is it depends on the type of assay, but it you know somewhere between two and six percent. Yes. Um, so you're measuring the, the 
telomere length in white blood cells, red blood cells? White blood cells, white blood cells. right. And um, how much variability within one person is, would there be between the telomeres in the white blood cell, red blood cell, adipose? Right. How much variability is there in the telomeres in, in these different cells? So within the white blood, well, the red blood cells don't have the, nucleus in the DNA. In the white blood cells, there's all sorts of different cells with different functions. It's really a mixed group, and, and immunologists just hate it when we take whole blood and we, and we talk about telomere length, because we have no idea what is driving that result. But the bottom line is that's where all this data is from that I've showed you. It's all about whole blood, and the meaningful marker, the gold standard measure, is telomere length across all those cells. It drives immunologists crazy because we, have, it, we don't know which cells are responsible for the telomere shortening. Um, I can tell you that, that the, if we were to look within cell types, which we sometimes do and other researchers do, it's the CD8 cells that are spinning down and aging more quickly and becoming senescent. And, and they get a you know, certain profile and cell markers. We identify them with flow cytometry, and we see that they are part of the culprit in immune aging. The killer T cell. So we haven't looked at natural killer T cells, but those are a type of CD8 cells. Um, your other question was, what about fat cells? What about other types of cells? So there have been studies that looked at telomere length across the different cell types, and they are correlated. Not huge, you know, it's not huge correlations, maybe 0.4 or so. So it, it does look like there is some, you're getting a hint of whole body aging when you look at immune cell telomere length. But I personally think that the immune cell telomere length is so predictive because it's, it's so directly tied to inflammation and immune senescence. Stress and lifestyle. So let me just show you what, you know, what happens when you're feeling stressed. What happens to your daily behavior do you take better care of yourself because you know you're under stress? Usually most of us, all of our self-care behaviors just fall to the wayside. And the diet we were on, forget it. If anything, we actually eat more of the high-fat, high-sweet food, and that's very much high, hardwired. We feel more sedentary, and we have trouble sleeping. So stress is kind of this big framework or organizing thing that shapes our daily life. And even when we don't want it to, so what's happening in our brain? Why do we do things, that, you know, why is it that our intention, you, you all made intentions last week to, to, cert, to meet certain nutrition goals. So why didn't you do that? <laughs> I think there wasn't one hand in the room. <laughs> Actually, met the goal. I might be wrong. But the, the we're really, um, when we're stressed, it's really, really hard to um, control some of the, drives that we have that are tied to survival. So let me explain what I mean. Um, there are these two, two systems I'm going to talk about. So we have the prefrontal cortex. This is the home of planning and control. This is the part of the brain that we want lit up with activation all the time. This helps us think clearly, solve, solve problems, and control behavior that we don't want to be doing. So when we want to ignore the donuts that are sitting there, we need to inhibit that behavior. And that takes a tremendous amount of prefrontal cortex inhibitory activity. So this is where we're at when we're feeling really um, relaxed and clear-headed. And after running and exercise, we have a lot of activity there. And then there's the lower systems, the limbic system, home of emotions, and the pleasure center, the reward center. And these drive a lot of our behavior, and we can't help it. These are extremely hardwired, strong drive. So when we're emotional, we live in our more limbic brain and our reward area. And 
and here's the, the clincher, the killer, it inhibits the prefrontal cortex. So we are doubly handicapped. We're feeling emotional, and we also are, we've damped down our, our control center, our home of controlling impulses. So what does that mean for behavior? Well, um, you can see my bias. I study cookies and eating and fat. So what this means is when we're really stressed, our brain actually craves high fat. That's for partly biochemical reasons, but also the reward center area. Once you eat fat, it dampens down the reward center, and that actually calms the HPA axis. So that's been shown in rat studies by Mary Dahlman here at UCSF. And that's basically, these studies basically show the power of comfort food, that when rats are really stressed, give them lard or sugar, and they look calmer, and their cortisol is lower. And so there's this kind of you know, feedback of stress driving greater consumption of, of, of the um, high-fat food, and then in turn that's making the rats feel better. And this probably happens in, in humans too. I would say a lot of people think it does. So we're going to talk a little bit about mindfulness soon, and I wanted to just show you how um, this prefrontal cortex is you know, an essential part of becoming really um, aware of our body and our feelings and our behavior and controlling behavior. So we really want to be promoting um, prefrontal cortex activity so we can be um, meeting our goals that we want to in life and not so much driven by the stress reactive brain. So I call this the limbic PFC balance. And when we're stressed, we're in this limbic PFC imbalance and all bets are off. It's very hard to stick to a diet or to exercise, etc. But it's when we need exercise most. So when you are under stress, you tend to eat less, the same, or more. The majority of you are probably in the more category. That's a more common category. And um, we and other people have shown that just identifying as a stress eater actually puts you at greater risk of gaining weight during st- stressful times and also greater abdominal fat. So it's definitely a, you know, something to be aware of, being aware of your emotions and whether you're eating for kind of emotional comfort versus hunger, true hunger. Let me show you my favorite rat study that shows what stress eating really does to us. So here, um, this is the little belly of rats. So they kind of, axial slice here, and you can see the yellow lit up, is the visceral fat. This is the fat that spews out all that inflammation and cortisol. And in this study, they had... Rats in under-control conditions, rats who got Oreos and chips, so they had a junk food diet. And then they had a stress junk condition where the rats also had um, uh, different types of stress in their life, and they got to eat junk food. And then you can see what's happened to their fat. You can see that junk food alone didn't do much, and actually the stress alone didn't do much either. But when you combine stress and junk food, you have a ballooning of that visceral fat pad. And this was such a fascinating study. They went in to see what was happening anatomically at those, in those fat cells. And what was happening in the stress condition is that the fat was remodeling. The cells were becoming huge and innervated. And um, there was angiogenesis. So blood vessels were enveloping the fat cells, and they were getting this great source of, of, um, of, of triglycerides. So the fat that the rats were eating was were going right to the belly fat, and the fat cells were maturing. These early preadipocytes, kind of these immature cells, were developing to these beautiful, full-blown, fully stuffed fat cells. So basically, the fat cells were being modeled, and the chemical that was doing that was called neuropeptide Y, and they actually blocked neuropeptide Y, and they didn't get this ballooning stress fat. 
So that was an interesting study. You can imagine drug companies and others are, you know, how do we get the neuropeptide Y right into those cells so we can block the stress fat? And it's probably never going to happen. Um, so stress plus junk food caused this whole full-blown metabolic syndrome, high cortisol, high insulin, high neuropeptide Y, greater abdominal fat, and a kind of, I won't go into this, but a little cortisol machinery was turned on into the fat cell, so it was spewing out cortisol. They were not given a choice of food, but there are studies um, by Mary Dahlman and colleagues where the rats are given a choice of their boring lab chow or uh, sucrose or lard, and when they're stressed, they ignore the low-fat chow, and they really eat the sucrose and lard. And they may even lose weight because of the stress, but their belly fat still gets relatively much bigger. So to summarize this point, you can see that this metabolic soup, the stress soup that we make when we're stressed, the cortisol and insulin, plus this comfort food tendency that really does work in the short term, actually has a, you know, it's this double-edged sword that when we eat the comfort food that makes us feel better immediately, it's going to be creating this abdominal obesity. So, so far I've shown you that stress really is not just in our head. It's in our bodies. It's in our cells. It does get under the skin. It can affect gene expression. It affects the proteins that we make. It decides, are they the stress pattern? Are they the, are they the genes that are turned on by inflammation? Stress can affect the rate of our immune cell aging, um, or at least the, the data hints at that. And one important pathway that we do know is through changes in our, in our metabolic health, in the chemicals that are in our blood, um, cortisol, insulin, inflammation. So now, finally, some relief. We're going to get to stress resilience. <laughs> so what is stress resilience? I've listed here four ways that we... Um, that we can build stress resilience, and you might want to choose one of them for your goal for this week, and Margaret can check in with you next week and see if anyone increased behavior in any of these areas. Um, I'm going to talk about exercise. We already talked a little bit about social connection, early nurturing, and I, w I won't have time to talk about that, but social support is one of the most important stress buffers, having a confidant call and using their support. I'll, I'm going to talk a little bit about mindfulness and some of our new interventions. And then Margaret, in the last lecture, is going to talk about positive states. Um, and then lastly, we're just going to end with a very, um, there are no real quick fixes, but there is an, a breathing exercise that if you do uh, over the long run, it really will become a longer-term way of regulating stress arousal. So let me just start with exercise. How many minutes each week do you do vigorous exercise? Vigorous. So you may do a lot of walking, and that might be enough, but I'm just, I'm just focusing on vigorous here. So what does the CDC tell us that we should be doing? The CDC recommends 75 minutes per week. So it comes out to about 10 minutes a day. It's not that much, 10 or 11 minutes a day of vigorous exercise. So this is really um, getting your heart rate up, et cetera. So one of our um, wonderful postdocs at UCSF, Eli Putterman, wanted to know whether exercise could reduce stress, reduce stress-induced telomere shortening. And so she's sedentary, and she's the exerciser, and we, they're both experiencing a lot of life stress, and we wanted to go in and look at what their telomere length was. 
So in this cross-sectional study, we divided up people into the active and the inactive based on that criteria I just showed you. Are you doing at least 10 minutes a day of that vigorous exercise? And what you can see is for active group, the high-stress people barely had shorter telomeres. This is not a significant difference. But then you look at our sedentary women, and you can see that if they're sedentary and they're high-stress, they had dramatically shorter telomeres. So it does suggest that exercise is particularly important when you're under a lot of stress. This is probably a, not an exercise to take too seriously, exercise, so to speak. But you can see here, where's your score? So did you score a, a three? If, and are you active? If you're active, it doesn't really matter. I mean, your stress level might not matter so much. But if you are sedentary and you scored high, you can see you're very likely to fall into the short telomere category. You may be, so if you scored a two, a three or maybe at you know, 80%. Now, that's a model applied to a big sample, and it's hard to apply models like that to individuals, so don't take it too seriously. But the point is um, that if you, are, if you are sedentary and high stress, then you, then you need to start becoming active. Here are many of the reasons and the ways that we know that, that exercise might be buffering stress. So one is it's, it's actually improving that stress soup, the levels of cortisol and catecholamines in our blood. It's reducing inflammation, free radicals. It's also changing the way we think. So this is kind of the, the bottom-up feedback. Rather than just changing your thoughts and saying, it's going to help my body, you're actually changing your physiology, and that's actually feeding back into your brain, increasing your prefrontal cortex, reducing rumination, which is one of the ways we really carry stress with us. So can lifestyle interventions increase telomerase or telomere length? So we haven't ever, we've yet to do a great double-blind study, but we do have some under the way at the OSHA Center, so we're, um, we're looking forward to those results. But so far we have some very interesting hints, mostly about mindfulness and mindfulness-based interventions. Now, mindfulness is a um, multidimensional construct, but I'm just going to, as an example, I'm going to show you um, an item from a mindfulness scale that gets at the attentional part. So paying attention in the moment is... The, uh, part of the attentional focus of mindfulness, um, being engaged in the moment, not thinking about the past, not, not worrying about the future. Um, there's also an attitude that goes along with mindfulness of kind of kindness and compassion. So I'm going to tell you about a colleague's study, Cliff Saron at UC Davis. This is a study that came out today, actually. It was in the news today. And um, it's been, a, you know, long underway. And basically, these colleagues at UC Davis brought a group of, of um, meditators to a retreat center in Colorado for three months. And they had a perfectly matched waitlist control group. So it's a very controlled study, and they all went there. And the waitlist group was measured on the same biological factors before and after this very intensive meditation retreat. You can see there was definitely an effect of context here. This is not a general, you know, necessarily a generalizable study. And um, here are the participants in the Dharma talk, the class with Alan Wallace. And they did a very thorough biomarker battery. So you can see they measured a lot of different factors in our blood to see is meditation improving any of these. And with the telomerase, um, we didn't get involved in the study till a little bit too late, so we didn't get a pre a baseline measure of telomerase, but we, we were able to get telomerase after the intervention in both the control group and the meditation group. So it's an imperfect design. But one of the most interesting parts of the story I'm going to tell you is you can guess the story is going to be about telomerase, 
um, not just because I study it, but because it was the only biomarker that was related to well-being. I mean, even cortisol failed us and DHEA. So, so it does appear to be you know, a promising biomarker that might be related to well-being. So let me show you um, the model here. The, mo- the idea here was that, that doing a lot of meditative practices would increase the states of mindfulness and maybe even meaningfulness and purpose in life. And that would um, increase positive cognitions, positive affect, perceived control, and decrease some of the stress vulnerability factors, feeling lack of control, feeling um, neuroticism, which is kind of just a negative affect measurement. And these, in turn, would increase, upregulate the telomerase activity in our cells. So the measure of mindfulness is kind of it's kind of complex. You can see there's different um, subscales, noticing experience, acting with attentional awareness, not reacting to um, thoughts and emotions, but just seeing them, accepting them, describing them, labeling emotions. It turns out that labeling emotions increases your prefrontal cortex activity, so there's something very powerful about the awareness of what we're feeling. So we tested this model, Tanya ja- uh, Jacobs, a postdoc, and as it, um, so the first question is, well, did three months on this mountain really improve wellness, or was it stressful being with one's inner experience and not having their normal life? Um, and you can see here that it, um, it's not surprising, but three months away from the usual stressors of life improved all of these scales of well-being, improved mindfulness, purpose in life. So the red dots are the... Um, the meditators and the blue dots are the control group. Increased feelings of control and autonomy and decreased neuroticism. So then the next question is, did it increase telomerase? So what did the control group do? The control group flew to the mountain in Colorado, got all the same measures. They all acclimated for several days with the altitude. They got all the same measures, and then they flew home. And then when it was time for the post um, measurements, they flew back got all those measurements done, but then they got their turn, and then they got to stay for three months and, and meditate. So what did we find? We just compared the treatment group to the waitlist group, the control group, and what you see here is that telomerase at the end of the retreat was significantly higher in the meditation group. So there's a big hint. Maybe it was the meditation, but maybe it was something else. So the real clue would come if we could see that the people who really did well and improved in well-being were the ones who had the highest telomerase. That would give us more confidence that it was about well-being. So here you can see that um, the control group didn't have that as much change in purpose in life, and it was certainly not related to their telomerase. That flat line means there's no correlation, but here you see a strong correlation. The higher the increase in purpose in life, and most people did increase, the higher their telomerase was. So these people really changed a lot, improved a lot, and also had the highest telomerase. And we see the same pattern with most of these psychological measures. I just won't show the same graph over and over. And so then, the, you know, is it really the retreat it, that um, led to the high telomerase? Is it exposure to meditation? Or did it work through control, um, decreases in neuroticism and increases in purpose in life. So these are statistical models. You can throw all three variables in and you can kind of figure out, well, what's really driving this relationship? Is it just the group or is it because it's mediated or, res- or due to the change in purpose in life? And you can see that in all cases it was really mediated through these increases in well-being. So the short story is it's not just 
go meditate and you're going to have these increases. It's increases in your in well-being are related to higher telomerase. There are other ways to get those increases in well-being. You don't have to go to a mountain th- for three months. Um, this was, I'm um, just going to briefly show you, this was a study by Dean Ornish and colleagues where they looked at telomerase pre and post his very intensive lifestyle program. So people ate low-fat diet, they did yoga, they had some group support, and these are all men with prostate cancer. And after the intervention, they did have significantly higher telomerase. There wasn't a control group here, so this was, again, an imperfect study, but another hint that telomerase might be responsive to lifestyle. And the men who had the biggest decreases in stress, in this case it was intrusive thoughts about having prostate cancer, because they had just learned they had prostate cancer, so those improvements were related to the biggest increases in telomerase. Yes? So there are many different measures we use to assess well-being. And um, in the, the purpose and life scale and that, that I just showed you was a scale by someone named Carol Riff, R-Y-F-F. Um, and I'm using well-being in the most general way about increases in feel in both, you know, emotional state and thoughts about the self and feeling control over life, you know, you know kind of globally. Um, so l- lastly, I'll tell you about an intervention we're um, they're doing at Osher. So Jennifer Dobbin-Muir started this um, with me, and we wanted to look at mindfulness and mindful eating at the same time and see if this helped reduce that abdominal fat. Because now we know that abdominal fat is so sensitive to stress. And forget about weight loss. Let's just see if we can reduce some of that visceral fat that's really the culprit in the health problem. It's not general obesity. In fact, the fat at your hips is actually really healthy. The more of that, the lower the glucose you have in your blood um, and insulin resistance. So we looked at um, mindfulness to both improve stress cognitions and emotions and um, improve hunger and satiety cues. We usually just ignore those, but we actually do have a lot of cues from our body about whether we really need to eat at the moment or not. So we wanted to use mindful eating to teach people those. And we based this on a program by Jean Christeller at University of Indiana. So our goal was to reduce emotional eating and reduce the physiological arousal from life stressors. And we hope to reduce abdominal fat and cell aging. So this was a small initial study, and the results were were interesting enough that we got some funding from NCAM to do this in a big way. So we now have a big ongoing trial at the Osher Center. Um, It's called SHINE, and we are really, really happy to have anyone who wants to lose weight join it. But you have to be overweight in the first place, of course. And you can look at the Osher website. So in this small initial pilot study, we wanted to reduce cortisol, reduce stress arousal. So here you can see in our um, sample of women that those who... Well, I should first tell you that when we wake up, um, our cortisol tends to be high in the morning to mobilize energy, but then about 20, you know, 30 minutes later, it spikes. And that spike is actually a little, uh, nice little index of stress, perceived stress. The more perceived stress you have, the more you spike up. And it might also be kind of preparing for the day or um, ruminating about what's ahead of you. So we don't know exactly what's responsible for that spike, but we do know it's, it's a pretty good index of stress if there are any. I mean, believe me, cortisol is a messy um, index. So here you see that the, the people who decrease the most in that cortisol waking response after they did our mindfulness, um, mindful eating intervention had bigger decreases in abdominal fat. So 
they lost more grams of abdominal fat. So this suggests that that mechanism probably is at work here, that that reduction in cortisol might be reducing the abdominal fat. Now we're going to get to look at that in several hundreds of people. Um, so it's so easy for us, especially uh, you know, living and, and breathing this research and knowing a lot about stress and how bad it is for your health, to want to push it all away and to avoid it and to damp down arousal. And you know, I've, I've said many times tonight, you know, reduce stress arousal, that's going to be good for your health. But our minds are wired such that when we want to push emotion away, it doesn't actually work. And in fact, it can backfire. And we actually find ourselves more stressed, at least physiologically, or ruminating about things even more. And then there's something else that happens, this whole another layer of negative emotions because we don't, we're upset that we're stressed. And that's actually part of what depression is, is, being, is not accepting negative emotion and really having a whole other reaction to that and feeling guilty and mad at yourself, etc. So there's this new way to think about stress that might be helpful for some people. And um, let me just tell you about some of the kind of assumptions behind it. So we really can never be stressless and that suffering is embedded in our life and inherent. And if you think of anything you've tried to do that's been hard, any achievement even, there's stress in that. And stress is part of engaging in life. Um, but we want to avoid you know, negative emotions and pain. And so we do try, you know, our, our automatic tendency is to try to be happy and try to push that away. But that actually doesn't usually work. And so there's an, you know, Part of the mindfulness intervention is to help people ex- just notice negative emotions and let them be and accept them. And that has actually been shown to really help. There's much more to it, but that te- tends to help with depression. So it's this more cognitive perspective of mindfulness and looking at thoughts and emotions and seeing that's not reality, that's not myself, I am not my thoughts, and I can, I can live with these negative thoughts and still go on. Um, so I did recommend a book that has this perspective called ACT, Acceptance Commitment Therapy, and uh, by Richard Blana. That's in your references. And so I, I'm, you'll notice I'm talking about leading the life we want. So for some people, stress or stressful thoughts are obstacles to living the life they want. They're getting in their way. And mindful awareness can help both noticing the thoughts, so checking in with yourself and just noticing thoughts, and then letting them float away um, rather than stay in your mind and be causing a lot of stress arousal. And mindful awareness can also help us do less time travel with our thoughts. So much of our time is spent thinking about the past and thinking about what has already happened or ruminating about it or projecting to the future, planning or worrying about the future. And so all of that cognitive activity leaves very, very little time for us to be right here and right now. And that's the time that we can be, relax our body, be connecting with other people. A lot of good things happen when we're in the present moment. So mindfulness training can help with less time travel. And it's also a piece of living our values, this ACT therapy. So let me just tell you a little bit more about that. Then ACT therapy, it's a new, a new therapy that's been helpful for PTSD and depression. They use it at the VA now. And it may also be helpful for stress. There haven't been studies on that yet. One of the things that it, it has a lot of clever exercises, so I'll just tell you about one that tends to be helpful for people more in the, I would say, the second half of their life. 
And so the question is, given how many days you have left to live, how do you want to spend the rest of your life? And so you could divide your list into three parts. So what do you want to continue doing or do more of? What do you want to start doing? And what are things that you've had enough of and you want to stop doing? And then think about, why not? What are the obstacles to living that life that I want to lead? And sometimes it is about thoughts and emotions and fears and so scripts that we tell ourselves. And so the... So part of the ACT therapy is living our values even with stress and negative affect and not thinking that emotions should be getting in the way and stopping us from doing things that we want to be doing. Um, another exercise they do, it's very morbid. I didn't like it at all when I first heard it, is to think about your eulogy and what do you want to have done at that time in your life, at the end of your life? What do you want people to hear about? So that's another exercise that, that can help people get in touch with their values. So the ACT therapy is very much kind of value-based and living a purposeful life. The question is, is ACT therapy really helping people with PTSD, veterans who've been traumatized? Yes. So, I, um, so let me expand on my statement. Um, ACT therapy... Is a, is, a, is a larger framework, and I've, shown, I've only shown you just a few pieces about um, uh, trying not to avoid negative affect. But it's a lot, um, it's a really full therapy, and yes, it has been very successful treating traumatized veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder, and they've rolled it out across the VAs. So it's, it's exciting, because there's been very little treatments that have been able to help PTSD. Okay, so I wanted to end with a um, with talking about breathing, and breathing is really at the root of all relaxation activities, and it's very, very powerful and simple, and it's something that is free and cheap. People who have very few degrees of the freedom in their life and don't have time to exercise and go to an intense three-month meditation retreat and other things still can do this exercise, and no one can take this away from you. Even if you're very busy and overloaded, you can sit at your computer and do this exercise. Um, When we do deep breathing, we are shifting our um, sympathetic and parasympathetic activity in a very favorable way, and we're turning on our our vagal tone, our vagus nerve, which is... um, which suppresses the, the stress response, in a sense, and turns on more restorative activities. So... The, one of the keys to relaxed breathing is to breathe in um, slowly and fully, but not too fully, but to breathe out more than you're breathing in. So you might think of 40%, 60%. And so the exhalation should be long and full. And I'm just going to be quiet for a minute and let you all do that. So you want to breathe in and have your belly extend. And then let yourself breathe out fully and slowly. And when you're starting that, you can do it over and over until you get slow enough that you're doing six breaths per minute or less. And that will change the stress soup inside of us. Um, not that anyone studied that specifically, exactly, but, but breathing is very powerful. So I'm going to just end here, and I'll be here for questions. 
um, that stress is not just in your head, but it's in our body, our brain, and our cells. It is a serious risk factor for both mental health and physical health problems. And we stress is here to stay, especially in this day and era, but we can live well with stress if we're aware of it and we build up these, these resilience factors and we can um, try to live that balance. Yes. Yes, that's a great question. So the question is, can people, individuals, find out um, if they have that gene for depression that makes you vulnerable to stress? And if so, what can you do about it? So there are now several companies that you can send in a little swab, cheek swab to, and they will tell you your full um, you know, genetic readout, at least of, this, of the variants that we know about, like this gene. And it's an educational exercise, and there's a lot of controversy about it. You know, the FDA is trying to regulate that type of information. One of the companies that I know better is called 23andMe, but there are several others on the web you can look up. And it's all by mail. It's not regulated by a doctor. And there is definitely some important helpful information in that genome. Besides knowing whether you are vulnerable to stress-induced depression, there are things like drug responsivity. Certain genes make you um, more or less responsive to certain drugs. So it is an interesting um, set of inf- you know, information to have about your personal health. Can we change our genes? There's absolutely nothing we can do to... to um, to change that, that risk profile, but the good news is that our genes interact with our environment. I mean, probably m- almost all the genes. There are a few rare disorders that are determined by one gene that are strong, but in general, the genes are not determinant. Um, they're just more give us a sense of your probability of risk. And then there's a lot that we can control in our lifestyle. So a really unhealthy lifestyle is probably going to increase the expression of genes that cause risk for depression and heart disease and diabetes. It's a great research question. Do, do the interventions, psychological interventions like mindfulness help people who are vulnerable to depression, like who have this short gene, more than people who aren't genetically vulnerable? I don't know that anyone's looked at that, but it's a very interesting question. And I think that's where personalized medicine is going to exactly those types of questions so we can tailor therapies more, know who's going to be more helped and who shouldn't bother. Yes? Positive aspects of stress, those that are motivating to us to... Okay, <clears throat> so um, it's, a, it's a good point that stress is... You know, I haven't talked much about positive stress at all, and we, um, we like to think of stress in terms of good and bad stress, and the good stress is challenge stress, and that, are, that is when we're engaged in activities that are hard but that energize us and cause us to have adrenaline and we feel motivated by them. And so there are definitely a lot of achievement challenges and positive stressors like that embedded in life. And those we you know, feel, some of us who have more risk, you know, risk-taking personalities really pursue those challenges and we get a lot of benefit from them. So the other, one, one way of thinking about threat and challenge stress is to ask yourself questions to figure out if something, is this really a very bad threat and bad for me psychologically or is this actually something really good to approach? So do you feel like you have control over the stressor? So when we feel like we have control, we can turn stressors into challenges that we can try to achieve and, and um, succeed at. Margaret, did you want to add anything to that one? Maybe later. Okay. <laughs> I have a question. Mindfulness? So the question is, 
does mindfulness really have a home in the prefrontal cortex? Is that, you know, can really localize it like that? And is that the type of meditation that the Shamatha Project was doing with Alan Wallace? And I definitely oversimplified that. So let, so let me, let me um, uh, elaborate on that. Now, the type of meditation, well, first of all, the converging research does suggest that that mindfulness and states of awareness do increase prefrontal cortex and reduce that the stress reactive part of the brain, the limbic system, and that the connectivity of the two are very negatively correlated, and you can increase that negative correlation with mindfulness training. So there's research that's starting to show that. It's not fully accepted, but the, this is a really active area of research in mindfulness is doing these brain imaging studies. Um, the type of research that, or sorry, the type of meditation that Alan Wallace was teaching was actually not mindfulness per se, and it was a much more complex, elaborated um, type of meditation, including something called the four immeasurables, and a really important part of what he was teaching was an attitude of compassion, and this type of meditation, I think the the Shamatha Project will um, will be showing this data, you know, in the future, but it the, the, the compassion meditation is probably one of the most important types of meditation for for kind of for good health and um, relationships. Um, does uh, does multiple sclerosis is it related to shorter telomeres? And if you lengthen your telomeres, can it help MS? And um, I don't know. I don't know that there's any research in that area yet. I do know that. In, in general, inflammatory disorders should be related to shorter telomeres. In autoimmune disorders, I don't think have been studied that much. Yes? The, the question was, can you go to your doctors and get your telomeres measured? And, the, and how much would it cost? And the, the comment that caused laughter was, you're not going to get insurance to pay for that, and you're absolutely right. <laughs> um, so the short answer is, um, right now, there are, I mean, I think at least one company on the web that you can get your telomeres measured at, and um, our company doesn't have that set up yet, but we will eventually do that for people, directly to people. <laughs> um, by next fall. And the reason is the technology is all in place, but we want to be, if we're going to be giving people information about their own telomeres, we want to be very confident about the norms, about how to interpret that. And so we don't feel like the, the data is there yet. Um, and in terms of um, measuring your telomeres, we did just, we're just in the middle of a study that um, we're just dying to know the results of, which is that we had um, uh, two let's see, 250 women come to UCSF this summer and have their telomeres measured. And so we're still assaying them, but then they're going to get to learn them and their length. And that has never been done before. And so there's all sorts of questions, like does it really help to know your telomere length? Does it cause a lot of um, uh, distress? You know, you don't want to know <laughs> that, that you're at risk of a, you know, a wide range of diseases of aging, or does it motivate you to engage in more health behaviors and lengthen them? So there's, it's a really wide open question. The question was, what about adaptogenic herbs? Have those, can those lengthen telomeres? Um, I can tell you with confidence, no studies. Well, I shouldn't say with confidence. There may be studies underway on that because there are a lot. There's a lot of interest in um, herbs and pharmaceuticals and whether they can affect the cell aging system. None that I know of. There was a study that came out last month on an 
herb extract, and it showed that it increased telomerase. And the, so that was impressive. That was the first study that suggests that a supplement could help. You know, it's, uh, I can't tell you. It was, I, I don't think it was the straight extraction of an herb. It sounded like a compound that they maybe manufactured. Yeah. Thank you so much, Alyssa. That was fabulous. Um, I just want to take time to make a few comments. Um, first of all, there was a question about, um, and Alyssa's been talking about, meditation and this concept of compassion. And we'll talk about some of that in the last lecture, but what's wonderful about compassion, if you can, in your mindfulness or in whatever meditation, to begin to sense of compassion, what that does is it's an antidote to anger. And some of the research that many of us were doing like a decade ago, I did a lot of research on, quote, type A behavior. We identified the component of type A behavior that led to heart disease. It was anger. It was a tendency to look at others. Like if you're driving down the freeway and you see the cars, are those cars fellow travelers just trying to get to the city with you? You know, or trying to get where you're getting, you know, and you can wave at them, which I do all the time. And, um, you know, they're, they're people stuck, or are they, are they in your way? Like for my dad, they were in our way, and if we needed to stop at the restroom, he counted the cars, we'd get back in the car, and he goes, now i got to pass 20 more cars again. And we, had, we learned to go to the bathroom very fast. So that anger is not good, it's very related to stress, but it's almost where people kind of go into social situations or into environments with this sort of chip on the shoulder, who's here, how important are they, and compassion is way on the other side of that. What can I find out about this person? There's, for every person you see, there are things to, to look for and develop compassion. You, have, you actually have a choice and we'll talk more about those choices. But that really relates. It brings all the research of the 70s and 80s all full circle to what Alyssa is talking about tonight. Uh, there was a question about poly, um, positive stress and challenge and all that. Let me just mention that when there is a stressful challenge ahead, a key thing is whether or not you have self-efficacy, a fancy term. Uh, Alyssa used the word control. It's whether or not you feel like, you know, I can handle this. I can do this. And when you feel that, like you're a hiker, you're at Yosemite, if you've been there and you want to do a hike, that's going to be a challenge to your system, but there's this good... So a lot of it has to do with the package. Do you feel as you look at that, this is something I can do? It's like getting a new kit and opening the instructions, which some of us do, some don't, and you have this sense of, like, I can do this. Some of us have colleagues and friends and spouses who say, I can do this, and they don't read the instructions, and then they get angry. Not so good. But normally it's this sense of self-efficacy and the stressor. Now, this is all complex. Add to that you're with some other people. And the other people, have you ever been at something where you knew it was really hard, we knew at the end of the weekend we were going to get this done, and you're doing it with others? That brings in that social support piece. And you reinforce each other. You say, I just don't think I can do this. Hang in there. We're going to get there. If any of you heard about the Giants, I'm not a sports fanatic, but watch how they talked about that game. They had efficacy. They also were a team. 
and Burrell, who didn't get the hit that would have made him super-duper famous forever and ever. Watch how they, the cameramen were so compassionate. They were keeping the camera on him when the last hitter was hitting. And when the last person hit that home run that won the whole thing, blew the, everything wide open, who ran out first? Burrell hugged him. Who ran out first? It was amazing, this team. He wasn't sitting there going, oh, you know, I missed, you know, I'm going to be traded now and feeling glum because he had this sense it was all about a team of misfits, as they call themselves. So the context around these are important. Take-home messages. You're starting to hear them from this class. Uh, Alyssa talked about the fat and the diet, the junk food. What did Ellen talk about? The junk food. There's another study, just like Alyssa's rat study, that looked at somologous macaques, monkeys. And they, fed, they put them in stress, um, and they stressed the male monkeys. I'll tell you how they stress female monkeys. It's opposite. But with the male monkeys, what they do is they get them all in a cage. They're all in the cage together, big cage, swinging around. And they'll introduce another male. And that means all the male monkeys have to figure out who's top of the totem pole. And that's very stressful because they've got to figure it all out now because they've got a new guy in there. They've got to figure out who's the strongest and do this whole thing again. And they fed them fat. The stress was kind of bad, if it, and they look at their heart disease, and if they were under stress, that wasn't so good. And if they just fed them the fat, which, by the way, they used the, the fat that they used to cook McDonald's French fries in the past. They used to cook McDonald's French fries in animal fat, beef, lard, beef, fat, and, in fact, people, McDonald's actually ran into trouble. They couldn't find enough fat to cook their French fries. Now they've had to change that. But they were wondering where it was all going. It was all going to, there to North Carolina to Kaplan, who was feeding it to the monkeys. When they put the two together, when they put the stress, as, as Alyssa was saying, with this fat from the, that the McDonald's wanted to buy but they couldn't, the monkeys developed heart attacks and died. Now, for the female monkeys, it turned out the social setting was great. You bring another female in, and it's like, oh, this is great, another person to talk to. You know? And so the monkeys are just having all this fun, and that didn't stress any. We're like totally disappointed. What's wrong with these monkeys? And then a female researcher came along, a wonderful colleague, and they discovered that for females, what's really stressful is to be in a cage alone that females kind of like do well in groups. And um, so that, I just thought I'd share that. Take-home messages. We've got to look at, you know, look at that junk food. Now, in two weeks, we get together, and I'm going to ask you, have you thought about making any changes? That intention, or have you actually maybe used that smaller plate or maybe said no? I love the way she talked about saying no to the donuts. One thing good is just don't even look at the donuts. Stand way away from the donuts so you can't smell the donuts because the smell goes right into that brain center that's not so good. Um, the other one was the omega-3s. You heard about that uh, last week, and Alyssa mentioned it too, the make sure it's threes. We've talked about exercise. Remember on the last class, if you come to the last class, you will get your very own pedometer to, that you, so you can keep track of your exercise. Um, and um, in the last class, we'll talk more about um, positive affect. We'll go back over some of the mindfulness and breathing. Alyssa and I really are about, we are inches away from doing a study, teaching people some better things about breathing and looking at telomere length. 
associated with people being randomized to either learning mindful breathing or basically a control group that would later get it. So we will be able to do one of those studies together, and we have our fingers crossed to get the funding. So we, this course is giving you up-to-date information. So I want us all to thank Alyssa again for getting us data just from today, which is incredible. So thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.